Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord, a podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. Hi, I'm Brian Lord, your host of the Beyond Speaking podcast, and our guest today is Garrison Wynn. Garrison fuses comic timing and research to deliver motivational business and safety expertise. For over 20 years, he's engaged clients like ExxonMobil, Caterpillar, Walmart, Verizon, the NFL, and even NASA at corporate and association events. He's an Amazon best-selling author, has been featured in Forbes, Inc. Magazine, and has uh, developed industrial products still being sold in 30 countries. We've worked with Garrison for probably like 10 or 15 years now, so a long time. So Garrison, thanks for coming on today. We appreciate having you. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Brian. I'm glad to be here. Glad to be here. (laughs) So the world has changed a whole lot in the past year, and you speak to leaders quite a bit. Um, what's one of the, and so one of the biggest challenges leaders are facing right now is how to lead their teams remotely. What advice would you give leaders on how to do that successfully? What's working right now, Brian, is number one is trust, meaning they have to believe that you believe they're working. So if they think that you're at home watching some weird, you know, like a, you know, Ben Affleck movie, you're not doing anything, you're, you know, you're in your underwear hanging out. If they believe you think that, it's very difficult to have influence. So the first thing is, is they need to believe that you believe they're actually working. Um, the, the second thing is, is that they have to kind of know what a good job looks like when it's finished, not just the steps to get there. So what does a complete good job look like? So clarity has never been so important when it comes to remote stuff. It's just a really, a, a very, very big deal. What does success look like when it's actually finished and not just the process by which it happens? And then the third thing is that they need to know when you're going to talk to them. Um, this whole idea of quality time, I give my people quality time. They don't want quality time. They want to know when it's going to happen tomorrow at two o'clock. They want your time at two o'clock tomorrow. It's kind of like uh, people say, oh, my, with my kids, I spend quality time. Your kids want to know when's daddy coming home, not quality time. So when is it actually going to happen? I think that's the key. So those three things, uh, big trust up front. They have to believe that you believe they're working. Uh, number two, how clear is everything? What does a good job look like when it's finished? And number three is uh, when's it going to happen? Is there a consistent regular time you'll communicate with them? That's the, that's the, the foundational part of it. And we find when it comes to remote, uh, managing remote employees, a lot of people don't do the basics and wonder why the specifics don't work. So. And why did you pick Ben Affleck movies specifically as, as the go-to for when you're not working? I guess there's always some weird Ben Affleck movie on Netflix. <laughs> I mean, you know, and he won an Academy Award. How? how how's that possible? I don't anyway. know. I'm, I'm really addicted. Like, I cannot not watch Armageddon if it's on <laughs> Ben Affleck. And, I mean, like, it's one of those things. Like, I, I don't know. Like, it's such a cheesy movie, but I'm kind yeah, of... I know. And that's what I'm thinking. Like that's if I were if I was supposed to be working and that came on, I would quit working and watch three thirty eight minutes of right. argument for no good. And if and if I'm your leader, I have to pretend like I don't know that and just trust <laughs> the fact that you are working and you're not watching Armageddon. So yeah, again, so, uh, so you were manager at a Fortune fifty company and a yeah. young manager at that. Yes, you you had to deal with change quite a bit as well at that time too. Different time period. Yeah, same change, and you were tasked with you know, teaching World War II veterans, much your, right. much your senior and life experience in other ways right. on change. What, how, what was that experience life like and what did you learn from it? 
Well, I have to explain. First of all, uh, that was in the 80s. And uh, so I'm on a Zoom filter. I'm actually older than this. So, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm like 112 years old in real life. Um, but in the 80s, and I was like 27 years old, and I worked for this company. My boss got fired. I got his job. So I'm literally, I'm 27, and I've got 71 direct reports at corporate. I'm over 38 satellite areas, and I'm young and don't know what I'm doing. The guys that I'm dealing with, the corporate people I'm dealing with, the, the VP team, they were they stormed the beaches in Iwo Jima. These are World War II guys. Like you've seen the Finding Private Ryan or whatever, they, they were there. And so I'd explain to them that technology, first of all, was actually a thing that existed. Uh, and number two, we have to have it now. And I need $280,000. That's 1980s dollars to do it. Yeah. So it was kind of difficult. And that change was difficult because I had to get buy-in. People have to kind of really believe that it's something that'll get them where they want to go. And I think that's the same way with, with today. We have to kind of let people know that we have to have things a certain way to be successful. We're going to have to treat employees a certain way. A lot of times we, we, we treat employees like the ones we used to have that no longer exist. We have to manage people for who they are, not who we wish they were. Mm-hmm. And that was a big step back then, uh, letting the, these people know, the World War II guys, that if we don't have this, we can't have modern employees. So, What kind of resistance did you come up with during that time? <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to people who had shrapnel in their leg, you know? <laughs> They're like, what do you know? We don't need none of that stuff. We're not into people business. We're into business and doing business, whatever that meant, you know, yeah. back then. Yeah, no, we, a lot of resistance. Um, back in those days, they got in a room and smoked cigarettes and just beat ideas around. And they, and they really, the, the, first of all, they were kind of brilliant. I, I'll admit these guys are pretty good. But military management didn't really work outside the military. Mm-hmm. meaning that people don't like an autocratic process. Uh, they want to know. People like to see that what they've done, people like to know their existing knowledge is valuable before they'll listen to your idea. And I think mm-hmm. they didn't really understand that. So I had to kind of coach them in that direction. They did come around, but only after the competition was beating us. They, they had to see that we were losing before they made a move back then. And when they did, they did they, they moved quickly. So they actually, I to their credit, they just moved with lightning speed, but they had to see they were losing first. So, and I had to explain everything like in, you know, military terms of the, or trying to, the enemy and the competition. And they were very, they didn't want to just like take over the market. They wanted to kill the competition. They wanted to destroy the competition. That's the kind of language they used back then. So. <laughs> so you've, you've been around a lot of different types of change. So, so one of the stories yeah. here, if you're fine telling it here, I know that you were actually- yeah, right. I think part of the very first console video game. Yeah. Weird story. So my dad worked for Magnavox and they developed this game called Odyssey, which was the first console video game. This is 1971. So I'm in the fifth grade. That's how old I am. I'm in the fifth grade. And my dad says, whatever you do, do not take one of the four demos to school for show and tell. (laughs) Seriously. So that's exactly what I did. And people went nuts. What was weird was the science teacher, who you think had the most knowledge, just couldn't believe that the console affected the TV. He was convinced it was a special TV. He couldn't even understand it. So what it was basically was you, you know, plugged it in. It was just like a modern game. Uh, there was tank and hockey and baseball. And my dad said we had 400 phone calls after that. Anyway, eventually <laughs> what happened was that they realized that uh, the game probably should be for kids because it was designed to be for adults. Magnavox developed, to, developed it to sell it with a TV set. Hmm. That was the idea. And so they said, wait a second, maybe it should be for kids. So they tried to do it, but they didn't do it very well. And the CEO uh, of Magnavox, who my father said wasn't the sharp guy, didn't understand really the power of the game. And a company uh, called Atiri, they thought back then, ordered 500 games, uh, a company in Japan called Atiri. Uh, that's Atari. 
mm-hmm. ordered 500 games, and the rest, of course, is history, but not with Magnavox. Yeah. What, what did that help you learn about how to deal with change? It helped me learn that sometimes you have to be realistic about it. If somebody wants something and they believe in it and, and it's hot in the moment, you've got to take action. Sometimes change works when you do it in the right moment. Change is about timing. You can't wait too late. I've always felt like you got to hang on to the old idea as long as you can while still working and embrace the new and right at the right time. So I think timing is everything. Uh, Magnavox was right there at the exact moment, and they just didn't think it was important enough. Again, they really believed that a video game was a way to sell TVs. They didn't understand the power of it on its own. So one of the other things that are coming up in a lot, with a lot of change is, you know, the coming talent war. So I know people have talked yeah. about this for a bit. You know, companies are, you are predicted to, even right now, there's empl- unemployment, but uh, right. the companies are going to be uh, having a hard time finding and keeping the right people. Right. Uh, first of all, how do you find the right people and how do you keep the right people? Well, you have to start with the problem. And the problem is we're getting ready to look at possibly um, half of a generation that will not be looking for a full-time job. They're going to work from home. They're going to work part-time. They're going to deliver packages for Amazon, or they're going to be at a coffee shop doing nothing. But what they're not doing is working a full-time job. That's going to shrink things dramatically. And as people are retiring, an entire generation retires. It's only half a generation comes in to replace it. So what you're going to have to do, number one, is look very hard for employees, and you're going to have to have an unbelievably good offer. The war is not between corporations and, 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 and talent, because people say, well, talent won. No, it's between the companies fighting over an employee. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to have an unbelievable offer. Or you're going to have to approve a fantastic employee experience. And to find and recruit, you're going to have to get real. So if you have a rural manufacturing facility that's in Arkansas, you're not going to be able to attract anybody from L.A. They're not coming. So, you know, you're going to have to go to similar places. You're going to go to somewhere in Oklahoma to find people to bring them into Arkansas. So when you're doing your social media and you're targeting clients, and hopefully you do have a social media campaign that's specific to targeting uh, potential, I mean, potential candidates, uh, you're going to have to get real about who they are, uh, about demographics and psychographics and knowing what they think and believe in. And what would they be willing to do? If they're going to move to your area, it's going to have to look a lot like the area they're already in, and your beliefs have to be their beliefs. So it's really about understanding who people are and what they value. And remember, the number one thing that all humans value is feeling valuable. So in that process, the employees going to have to really feel like you value them for who they are, again, not who you wish them to be. So. How much do you think of the retiring generation is going to come back at some point? Um, you know, whether it's part-time or, or otherwise? It's a big question. I would say, I, that's, by the way, the great question. I, I think we're going to see 15 or 20% have to come back. There's no way around it. I'm talking to companies right now that are already talking to their retiring people, say, look, we got an idea. we got a plan. we got a plan. Because they realize that there's no replacement for them. Uh, companies I'm talking to say that for every five retirees are bringing in one or two people. Mm. That's how far off it is, yeah. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, so that's you know, one of the other things that, that's come about now, you know, we talked a little bit about the first at the first part is dealing with change. What are right. some successful ways people can view and deal with change and stress? Well, the thing about it is, first of all, is to understand that stress is not a thing. Stress is not there's not really any such thing as stress. Stress is a belief that you hold about something that gives you a feeling. In other words, People jump out of airplanes for fun. I'm going to jump out of airplane for fun. Usually strapped to another dude like, ah, that's fun, right? <laughs> um, and then they're hospitalized because of worry. Mm. Yeah. 
So it's really a belief that you hold. And if you believe that something is that important, if it's life or death, there's no way out, they're going to be stressed out. Uh, but the leading cause of stress is a lot about your actions. The leading cause of stress is knowing exactly what you're supposed to be doing and consistently doing something else. That would be the leading cause of stress. If I know I'm supposed to be doing this, but I'm sidetracked with that. So a lot of stress is about planning on doing the work that you know has to be done. Are we doing the difficult things first? Have we identified what the worst possible thing is? And we work on that first. That as simple as that is, it's huge. The last thing is this, action and adaptability create opportunity. That action and adaptability create opportunity. Are you flexible enough along the way to the goal? And sometimes flexibility is a combination between saying, hey, I think I can survive anything. I'm going to be okay. I've got some faith that things are going to work out. Um, and the other thing is, is are you willing to learn? Are you willing to, to do something? Um, are you willing to change what you're doing to get to where you want to go? It's the willingness. And sometimes you don't have to be that good at change. If, if you're willing, then sometimes you'll be surprised. I've, I've, in my life, I've seen situations where I felt that it was too difficult to change, but I said, I'm going to try anyway. And I found that I actually moved ahead of other people who probably were better at it than I was. I just, I just was willing to, to make the attempt. So, so, um, you know, for this, how do you, I, I like put, putting speakers on the spot here. Uh, so yeah, how do it. you set up your day to avoid or deal with stress? Well, the first thing I have to realize is I am a high energy guy and I operate on stress. I'm someone, <laughs> my belief is it's got to be done right. It's got to be done perfect. And I, I make sure that I am honest with myself about myself. I'm a high strung dude. Okay. That is, there's no doubt about that. So since I know that about myself, I make sure that I stop and really take a look at what's important. Before I do anything, what is the most important thing I've got to do? And what's the thing we have to do? And if we don't do that, we've got a problem. And I make sure that I'm building my day around that. So there I avoid that doing this, right? When I'm worried about that. The second thing that I do, um, and it's kind of, uh, no one wants to talk about this, is that I, uh, I kind of allow myself uh, to be who I am and realize when you're high strung like me that you're going to have to apologize. Yeah, you have to do that. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're either a person who never has an issue or you're good at apologizing. You have to be one of those two people. <laughs> and so I'm, <laughs> I'm good at telling people, guess what? My actions are wrong. I want you to know that I know my actions are wrong. We're going to get it. I'll be better here in 10 minutes. So when I'm working with my people and my staff, I make sure. And I, that's why I've had staff members for 20 years is because uh, they know that I'm honest with myself about myself. And over time, I got better. I'm much better uh, than I was 10 or 15 years ago. There's, there's no doubt about that. But the last thing I want to say is that when in, in, in dealing with stress to get real about the situation, about the studies have been done maybe every 10 years, about, and it comes out the same way, 90% of everything everyone's worried about is never going to happen. 90%. And that 10% is something you can actually deal with. So I'm real about the fact that as much as I feel the life or death uh, stuff, that none of it's that real. And that stress, in fact, is a, a belief that I'm holding. And if it's about a belief, I can alter, manage, or at least acknowledge my beliefs. So that's what I do. Uh, so speaking of things you've done, you've, uh, you've done a whole lot in your career. And one of those things was actually being a stand-up comedian yeah. and traveling around with uh, Mitch Hedberg and some others. What, what, yeah. uh, what was that experience like and any good stories to share from that? <laughs> I've got stories I can't share that your viewers can't hear. 
Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff in the, a lot of stuff in the eighties we can't talk about anymore. Just so you know, <laughs> yeah. can't talk about that, but I can tell you that, um, a couple of Mitch was a very, very nice guy. A very nice guy. Got very nervous. He made, he was so nervous. He made me nervous. Uh, but a yeah, very nice guy. So I got to work with a lot of people, a lot of famous people, um, have an ex-girlfriend that's famous. Um, so I got exposed to that. And I, what I learned was it's, uh, you know, about being good and being ready and being prepared. Um, but I guess the, the, the story people ask me about, so I, Rodney Dangerfield used to go to the comedy store in LA and he would go in there and he would help give notes to comedians. This is back when, uh, you know, Paulie Shore was about this big and Mitzi ran the thing and, you know, Paulie was a little pain in the butt. Um, and so it, comedians like me, I was a road comic. I was a middle guy. There were probably 150 of us that nobody knew who we were. There were the headliners and stuff and people like Richard Jenny and, uh, people like Andrew Dutch Clay and, uh, all that kind of stuff. So, um, anyway, so, uh, Sam Kennison was the doorman back in the early days. Kennison, he worked the door. Mitzi wouldn't let him, let him on stage. Uh, same thing. She hated Louis CK. Wouldn't let Louis CK on stage. Um, but anyway, so, uh, I, I was coming off stage. I, I don't know Rodney, but he was there. And as I'm walking past him, I'm a young guy. I'm like 20 something years old. He goes, Hey, hey, kid, hey, kid, lose the dolphin bit. Dolphins aren't funny. <laughs> Rodney told me. And then people ask me, well, what was the dolphin bit? Well, the dolphin bit was this. Remember, this was really funny a long time ago, or maybe not so much. He said, lose it. I said, you know, I was recently uh, kicked out of uh, the dolphin, the dolphin wrestling association yeah, for holding the blowhole. You, you can't, you can't do it. You can't hold the blowhole. So that was the bit. Um, it was terrible. I don't know anyway. what he was talking about. That was, that was magic. That was gold. Right no, it's not magic. <laughs> anyway, but uh, yeah, so um, I had a good experience. I got to travel around, meet people and see people, but do understand a lot of people, they weren't famous when I knew them. So if some famous person calls me on the phone, people, oh, wow, just who's on the phone? Now, they knew me before. So it's not like famous people reach out to me. I knew them when we were all not famous. So. <laughs> Great, yeah. great. Well, Garrison, thank you so much for, for joining us here on the Beyond Speaking podcast. And and for those watching and listening, uh, you can check more out at uh, Garrison Wynn on the premierspeakers.com website. And uh, from all of us here at Premier Speakers and National Speakers, thanks for tuning in and uh, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you check out podcasts. Thanks again. Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking podcast. To learn more about today's guests, go to beyondspeak.com. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe wherever you listen.